space-time, the ever-expanding frontier. These are the records of the most needlessly complicated rewatch of the Star Trek franchise ever. Its mission, to locate every second and contemplate every eon, from outside time to the Big Bang, all the way to the end of all existence. To do what no sane entity has ever done before. This is the Temporal Trek Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Temporal Trek Podcast. This is Season 1, Episode 4, and we are in TOS, all our yesterdays from Season 3. We're going to be dealing only with the scenes between Spock and McCoy 5,000 years ago. It's going to be a lot of chop and change here, so it's going to be a lot of coming in and out of timestamps. So be prepared, maybe even take some notes if you want to re-watch this at home. We're going to begin at timestamp 8 minutes, 8 seconds. Spock and McCoy are in some sort of barren, frozen wasteland. They are only in their uniforms, so there's been no preparation to this. I can only guess that they've been thrown against this situation against their will, or were unaware that what they might do might bring. What is this place and where is the captain? McCoy has spelled it out for us. We don't have Kirk. Normally you would have the trinity, the holy trinity of these three characters together. There is no Captain Kirk. So they kind of say it for you. And we come out within five seconds uh, at eight minutes, 13 second timestamp. We then come back at nine minutes and six seconds. The guys are looking for a way out. Um, they are trying to uh, survive, but also figure out if they can get back to wherever they were, perhaps back to the Enterprise. Spock tries to use a phaser, but realises it doesn't work. So whatever process they've gone to get wherever they are, it has nullified their technology. They're going to have to rely on their basic survival skills. And we come out at 9 minutes 29 seconds. We come back again at 10 minutes 21 seconds. We can hear Captain Kirk talking. He seems to be right behind them. There's some sort of time travel element involved and, and the characters talk about this for a short time. In fact, only three seconds worth. And we come out at 10 minutes 24 seconds. We come back again, 10 minutes 51 seconds, and they're calling out for Kirk again. 10 minutes 53 seconds, we stop. I told you this was going to be a lot of chop and change. We now come back at 10 minutes 55 seconds. The characters say they can hear Kirk, but they can't see him. There seems to be a time door involved, perhaps. Uh, there seems to be a barrier that they can't get through, but sound can. And we come back out at 10 minutes 58 seconds. We start again. New timestamp, 11 minutes and 5 seconds. Spock is going to be delivering quite a lot of exposition. He's going to be starting to talk about escaping destruction by going into their past. So we're not on Earth, we are on an alien planet 5,000 years ago in their history. And presumably, in the future, the aliens are escaping into their own past to perhaps prevent some sort of cataclysmic disaster or escape a cataclysmic disaster. We end at 11 minutes and 10 seconds. We come back at 11 minutes 17 seconds and we can hear Kirk again. But this time Spock is saying that they are in a place of Arctic characteristics. McCoy, in just this briefest of moments, shoots back with a classic McCoy rebuttal. He means it's cold, Jim. Uh, I love the, the interplay between these two characters. I love that we're going to be looking at these two guys in what is effectively our first proper TOS episode. I know we had the animated series, but we've got uh, a but we've got an episode in the proper original series with the proper characters back when they were fully aware that fans enjoyed the Spock McCoy dynamic. So here they are in an episode. Unfortunately, the penultimate episode. That scene ends at 11 minutes 25 seconds. New timestamp. We begin at 11 minutes 28 seconds. 
Spock is talking about some sort of library. So they must have come from a building in the future called a library or a type of library. But they are now at the base of an ice cliff. And we come out at 11 minutes 35 seconds. We come back at 11 minutes 38 seconds. And Spock says it must have something to do with the Atavacron. Hang on a minute. Wasn't that the thing that my commanding officer was using when I was back in front of the Guardian of Forever. Hmm, that's strange. Uh, we end at timestamp 11 minutes 43 seconds. We now come back at 11 minutes 48 seconds. Kirk has said something. We're not entirely sure what it is because it doesn't happen as far as we're concerned. But Spock is nodding and saying that uh, the Atavacron seems to open up portals in time to the past. And the McCoy seems to think that this has something to do with the records tapes in the library that he was reviewing, which was looking at the Ice Age of this particular planet 5,000 years ago. Of course, this episode is set 5,000 years ago in an alien planet's history. But to give some sort of context to you in the real universe, I thought I'd throw in some human history so that you have a point of reference what's happening elsewhere in the universe, specifically Earth. So 5,000 years ago. Of course, I'm going to be quite loose, uh, give or take a few hundred years, you know, a couple of decades here and there. Uh, I'm looking at things that are happening around the same time. Bear in mind that on this planet, they are going through what appears to be a full ice age. So what's happening on the Earth in what was called the fourth millennium BC? I think one of the most famous things is going to be Stonehenge being built. Probably the biggest uh, and most internationally renowned structure uh, to be built at this point. So that tells you what was happening in terms of where I am today in the UK. Uh, we're at Stonehenge level technology. You have humans moving out into the New Grange in Ireland. You have people over in Orkney in the Scottish Isles. You have uh, Scara Bray in Orkney as well as, as one of the very earliest Copper Age settlements. So that part of Europe, that is what's happening there. If we go into further Europe, we have uh, Los Mirales uh, in Spain. Uh, it's one of the very earliest uh, fortified settlements. So a reinforced uh, embankment and defence structure. So Spain has sort of seen a, a leap forward in military technology at this point. We're seeing the first cotton being woven if we come into the Middle East. We are then looking at ancient Egypt. Uh, the pyramids have been around for quite some time and are continuing to be built. We're having a mass industry explosion uh, in and around Egypt and the Middle East. You're seeing the first cotton being woven. You're uh, seeing the first clay tokens that could be used as uh, a monetary system in bartering or to be used as a press, an ink press, so that you can uh, record writings. Speaking of writings, you have the Epic of Gilgamesh is written around about this time as well. So, uh, speaking to Star Trek fans here, Gilgamesh plays a huge part when we come up to TNG in one particular episode. Uh, it's nice to see that that's happening whilst we're watching this episode. It is being written and it will be something that will be very important for Picard coming up. In Northern Africa, we're starting to see the beginnings of the Sahara Desert. It's a period called the Piora Oscillation, which is a very rapid, very intense event uh, where uh, everything becomes arid, everything becomes dry. Uh, nearby regions are starting to be abandoned in favour of the Nile area, which is why Egypt then becomes so successful and so on and so on. Mesopotamia is also becoming a very big part of this time as well. Speaking of Egypt and this area, we are also seeing earliest forms of writing uh, being developed in Egypt and Sumer, Sumeria. We have the first use of uh, pots and what was called the funnel beaker culture, 
So the ability of humans to not only cultivate the land, but move crops and grains and so forth from one spot to another. They don't have to leave things behind. They don't have to constantly forage as they go. They can actually store things and, and it starts to, to move humans from this nomadic way of thinking to a much more stationary agricultural way of thinking. We even get the first earliest depictions of a wheeled vehicle, uh, which was apparently painted onto the side of a beaker or pot. As we move a bit further on, uh, about 2800 BC-ish, uh, you've got the first yin and yang philosophy is starting to be developed in China under the emperor, and I'm really apologizing now on my pronunciation, Emperor Fu Hsi, Hsi, uh, Emperor Fu Hsi, Hsi, I don't know. But in China, the yin and yang philosophy, I'm trying to desperately remember my philosophy uh, on uh, Far Eastern philosophy, uh, it's something to do with the five elements, I remember that. Uh, you've got your, your, your wood, fire, earth, water, I think metal is the other one. I know it's not hot uh, to any of the Captain Planet fans out there, but uh, I, I think it's metal is the other one. Uh, but it's a philosophy of balance. It's basically maintaining your actions in balance with these five elements, and it becomes a core part of that Chinese culture at the time. We also have old Chinese records at this point being formed on what's called bone script, where they're using animal bone or turtle shells as a form of uh, writing slate. Because that writing is going on, it moves on from just simply being a philosophy and a way of life, we then get what is now seen as alternative medicine or Far Eastern medicine. You have the herbal medicines coming in, you have acupuncture being applied with the very first, earliest bone needles and, and so forth. That philosophy is starting to move on as well. If we now move over to the Americas, so both North and South Americas, uh, you're starting to see the first domesticated crops of maize being grown in Central America. Potatoes, sweet potatoes being cultivated at that same time. So I apologise, it's a bit of a rough and ready history. I've sort of tried to capture all of human history there. At this point of time, it flips between different centuries as I go. But it's just to give a sense of the global history, what is actually happening on Earth around Earth as well. Anyway, back to the episode. This planet has gone from an ice age to a time-traveling, a Tavacron-building, fully advanced race. That's a lot of development in such a short period of time. This might be indicative of the 1960s way of writing this show, if I'm stepping into the production universe, but that's really fast. We also set up the idea that the two characters of Spock and McCoy came back into this point in the past because they stepped through together, even though Spock wasn't reviewing the same tapes that McCoy was. And we end at 12 minutes and 3 seconds. There's one second that we come back, which is 12 minutes 41 seconds, and we come out at the exact same second, but it is just a short clip just to remind the viewers that Spock and McCoy are freezing. Then we come back proper at 12 minutes 46 seconds. Now you'd be pleased to know that's the worst of the chopping and changing we're going to be doing. We can now stay with quite a few scenes and examine a bit more about what's going on. We know that Kirk is in some sort of trouble because uh, they were listening to him and now they can't hear him anymore. Uh, something has happened on his end of the time portal which means that Spock and McCoy can't hear him any. Spock realises though that in this environment they can't just simply stay there and wait to hear back from Kirk, they need to find some sort of shelter. There's a really weird bit of blocking and acting. I don't know if this is something that the actors uh, knew they were doing or whether it was um, an early indication of something that's going to happen later in this scene, but Spock shoves McCoy to move him on. 
he doesn't simply just sort of in, like tap him on the shoulder and point to somewhere. He literally takes him by the shoulder and shoves him forward. It's a very aggressive move from Spock. But as we're about to find out in later parts of this scene, it might be a very clever indication of what's about to come. The two men circle around a rock. It doesn't appear as though they've been walking for a very long time, but because of the jump cut, we could perhaps say that they've been walking for five, ten minutes or so. The blizzard is intensifying and McCoy collapses. He's saying, leave me here, Spock. Uh, and Spock is saying that, you know, we have to go together or not at all. Uh, McCoy is saying that, the, you know, frostbite has begun to set in. He's starting to lose sensation in his fingers and his, his feet. And that Spock would alone have a better chance of survival. Spock, again, refuses this. Um, he's acting very logically, but it's said in an almost emotional way. McCoy just rebuts, saying that he's a stubborn Vulcan, as always. Just as it appears as they are about to get up, a hooded figure appears dressed in a fur coat. This figure points towards a cave, which you can see sort of glowing embers coming from it, so there must be clearly a fire and warmth there. So the characters move on, and they go into the cave. McCoy passes out, and Spock points out that he's actually the Doctor, so they're in a bit of a bother. He says that he's not the expert in using the medical devices, but he's going to have to use them anyway. The figure removes the hood, and we see that it is a beautiful woman. As always in the 1960s, as soon as that happens, um, with uh, the certainly Star Trek indeed, uh, a little bit of music chimes and we get the beautiful woman soundtrack. It's that romantic music. Um, she's seeing someone different in Spock and she seems really happy to see him, that she's not immediately put off by the idea that he has ears that aren't necessarily the same ears that her race have. Coincidentally enough, this race seemed to look very human as well, so very, very odd. She asks them the question, your prisoners too? Did Zorkon send you here to disappear you? Now, someone remind me, I I grew up a little bit after this, but isn't Zorkon a character in the Power Rangers? Or is it Zordon? I can't remember. If someone could get in contact with me, please let me know. But anyway, Zorkon has sent you here to disappear. So it's a time prison? that so not everybody in the future was trying to get away from some cataclysm that there's also people in the past who are sent in a prison of some kind hmm. your tavacron a prison nah that can't be anything she knows that spock is from a different world she's noticed the ears and she doesn't seem bothered by it she says that she used to read books of this kind of thing and she always thought it was such a wonderful idea to meet strange new life forms um, she's reading straight from the book of Star Trek, if anything. But she's a sci-fi fan. She's one of us. You know, maybe this uh, fur coat isn't just about protecting her from the cold. Maybe it's cosplay. Who knows? But at this realisation, she starts to then doubt her own sanity. She thinks she's going mad, that actually she's alone, and she's just imagining these two characters uh, who've just appeared. Um, you know, it, Entirely possible, if she was a prisoner and she's been alone in the cold for goodness knows how long, she could be going crazy. But... We happen to know these are real characters. Spock gets up and again is very aggressive. As we have with the push against McCoy, he now almost shakes this character. Uh, he grabs her and shakes her physically. Now that's really uncomfortable to watch. The idea of someone grabbing a woman and shaking them in any context is just so hard for me to look at. But he reinforces that he is convinced that he's real and that that should convince her. Now, wouldn't that exactly be the thing that a delusion would tell you? Um, it's not a convincing argument, but I think it's actually evidence for something, again, that I say is coming up in a moment in this scene that shows that Spock's rationalism seems to be failing. He's appealing to a, an idea given by the philosopher René Descartes. I think, therefore, I am. Well, 
actually the translation is I am a thinking thing therefore I am which fine secures the fact that he thinks he's real but if he were an illusion of hers that doesn't necessarily prove it to her. Spock is broken out of this becomes concerned with McCoy again she asks him if McCoy is dying there's a moment in the way she delivers it that's it makes me as the audience member question is she actually concerned or does she actually want more alone time with Spock given the romantic kind of music we've had so far the idea that she was so happy to see strangers we're already getting into this idea that she perhaps has an ulterior motive there is another aspect to what's going on and we stop at timestamp 17 minutes 43 seconds we come back at 21 minutes and 9 seconds Spock says that he's going to try and rouse McCoy try and get him back we find out that the female character is called Zara Beth she sheds her fur coat to reveal the highly practical outfit of a skin bikini now I mentioned she's a cosplayer maybe that's the costume she came in I don't know but it's very very weird she's got knee-high fur boots and a bikini under a fur coat now admittedly she's inside a cave which seems very hot so she would have to wear the minimum of clothing but when she went out into the snowstorm she was just wearing that and a coat doesn't seem like the best idea to me Spock begins to tell Zara Beth about uh, Captain Kirk uh, that they could hear him as he's speaking to her she's kind of sitting on the edge of uh, a fur bed you're not quite aware whether Spock is aware of what she's doing she seems to be trying to draw him in trying to lure him in trying to get him to talk to her and stay engaged in the conversation and not think about anything else Spock is trying to get back to that idea that he needs to get back to Captain Kirk and find out what's going on perhaps return back as well and he grabs her by the wrist and drags her around the cave back to where the entrance to the cave is it's another one of those really uncomfortable things to see seeing seeing a male character grab a woman by the wrist just it gets you going it re oh it's so hard to watch it, it might not be something that everyone reacts to but it's just something that doesn't sit right with me now given this scene and given what we're about to learn i keep on coming back to this but what we're about to learn about what's going through spock's mind it actually makes a lot of sense so blocking wise and action uh, to an actor that probably does make sense he knows what's coming in the script so he's sort of basing some of his earlier actions and Leonard Nimoy was a genius at these tiny little movements and pickups that he placed in his actions and his blocking that later you start to realize that that must have been a conscious decision that can't have just been the way things were done in the 60s there's something about how Nimoy works as an actor that makes me think that the way he treats Zara Beth and McCoy as well was a conscious choice that this isn't just a male character dragging a female character around as we can see in many other TV shows and movies from this era Spock then starts to sort of talk through his thoughts he seems to be struggling with something internally he's vocalizing what he needs to do to go and see the captain but he can't abandon McCoy he can't seem to give up he seems to be rationally listing everything that needs to happen in his head Zara Beth says you're talking as though this is an equation and Spock says it should be an equation but he doesn't just re respond to her he shouts at her this is anger this is something completely un-Vulcan about Spock that's happening the Atavacron the Atavacron seems to be affecting his mind he seems to be changing I wonder I wonder if the Atavacron's gonna change me hmm. uh, uh, back to the review Spock uh, turns his focus back to Zara Beth 
why are you a prisoner? She walks away again in, towards the camera in that very 1960s blocking kind of way. Um, that turnaround move in a soap opera when a character has to deliver the emotional heart of who they are as a character. And they look at the camera, but the other character is also looking at the camera. Uh, but in reality, they would be talking to your back, which would be very unnatural. I know it's the way things were done uh, when they were making movies and TV for this era, but it, it still stands out as very ridiculous in the way that a character talks. But Sarah Beth has a very important story to tell us. She was a political prisoner, that she chose her kingsman wrong. She was standing up to this Zorkon and was perhaps leading some sort of rebellion against Zorkon. She cannot go back with them. She cannot go back to her own time. The Atavacron will make her die. What? It will... what? Her cell structure has changed and it will make her die. Um, uh, my commanding officer used that on me. Does that mean I'm, I'm stuck here? Forever? McCoy starts to wake up. He looks at Zara Beth sort of up and down, trying to size her up, trying to figure out who she is. And Spock explains that they can't return and that they're trapped. We end at 25 minutes, 58 seconds. We come back on a new timestamp of 30 minutes, 1 second. McCoy is already flirting. What a little devil. Um, it's not until I watched some of these episodes back, the TOS episodes back, that I realised that as much as I loved Spock when I was a kid because of the way he dealt with his emotions and things like this. As I'm growing up, I'm starting to appreciate McCoy a hell of a lot more. I really do like the old country doctor. Um, he's he's a smooth talker, is old McCoy. He actually tries to get her interested. And he's, he's putting down, he's negging on Spock. He's talking about how Spock is deficient emotionally and how there's a really big difference between him as a human and Spock as a Vulcan. However, Zarabeth clearly is more interested in the pointy-eared guy to his side. And there's another look from McCoy towards Spock when she says that, that he already seems to be aware that there's something different about Spock as well. Uh, they've been friends for so long that he's obviously picking up on something. Now, we as the audience haven't been given much. There was a couple of shoves from Spock, there was an irrational thing, there was the raising of the voice. But we really haven't given, been given very much. We have to assume that when we came out of this scene and when we come back, some time has passed. So perhaps Spock has displayed some more emotions around that as well, as McCoy was being sort of roused and, and woken up. McCoy gives a few digs in about Spock uh, practicing medicine when he shouldn't do. Uh, he's trying to be sort of jovial and funny about it. There's a great bit of back talk where Spock talks about how actually McCoy is the worst patient on the Enterprise, even though he's the best doctor. We now establish that Spock is aware that there are 5,000 years in the past. This is where we actually get the time um, for the era that we're in. Spock says that they can only hope that Kirk has somehow gone back to the Enterprise themselves. Um, back in the future, 5,000 years in the future. But McCoy seems outraged that Spock hasn't tried to do more. There's an element that now McCoy seems to be goading Spock into reacting to certain things. The way he's delivering these lines, he, he seems suspicious of Spock. So everything he says has some agency to it. These aren't just throwaway lines. Spock is talking very futilely. He's already given up. He, he seems to accept Zarabeth's word that they can't return, that they're... Yeah, Tarakron means they cannot go back. McCoy tries to come back to him and says, I, you know, I would never have believed it. And Spock turns around in a very sassy and very pointed rebuttal. And he gets a bit snarky. And he says, perhaps you were too ill to understand what part of can't get back means. So now we know Spock isn't the Spock we know. He's a very different man. Wherever they are in time and space, 
seems to have affected him in some way. McCoy knows that Spock has been influenced by Zarabeth. Spock shoots back with a, hmm, that prospect seems quite favourable to you just a moment ago. Uh, without even saying it explicitly in words, we already get the idea that Spock knows that McCoy was trying it on with Zarabeth and he's now trying to pin it down on the fact that she likes Spock more than him as a way of uh, deflecting McCoy's response. McCoy is goading him even further. I think he's really trying to push it now. I don't think that this is a, an accident of writing. I don't think this is poor writing. I actually think this is a very direct and a very McCoy thing to do. You're just this pointy-eared Vulcan and Spock snaps. He doesn't just stand where he is like a normal Vulcan would. He doesn't just take it and then move on. He actually goes right up into McCoy's face, grabs him up and stares at him. And he's really pissed off. And he says he doesn't like names. And now he definitely knows he doesn't like them. It's the angry Spock. Every every now and then you just want to see angry Spock. Just, just want to see him snap. As scary as it is to think that this alien, who is twice if not three times the strength of a human is about to you know really get angry it's always fun isn't it seeing a character sort of break from who they are just every now and then because you get even more appreciation of who they are when they're normally as they would be day to day and we end at timestamp 33 minutes 24 seconds we return 36 minutes 40 seconds we've got spock and zarabeth having a conversation she's fully accepted that she is stuck there she cannot leave this is her time now regardless of where she came from this is her time now and uh, this interplay between two characters actually put me in mind of discovery and in between some of the the really bombastic action scenes that we get in discovery there are some really great back and forth scenes between two characters where we get the emotional reasons the motivations behind person a person's action and within a few sentences in a tos episode back in the 60s you know, there is 50 years of history between Discovery and TOS and the writing for the characters is still there. Criticise Discovery all you want for being you know, physically dark on the screen. It's quite hard to see some things. But the character work and the interplay and getting across so many different ideas and character flaws and psychology in just a few sentences is still evident even back then as it is today. Spock almost seems to have returned back to his normal logical self. He's trying to gauge his survivability. He's trying to place where their shelter is. We find out that there's a hot spring which warms the cave, so that's why it's nice and warm. I guess that could kind of explain why she's in a bikini. Uh, you know, maybe she saw these two characters and she just rushed out. You know, she left all the main clothes behind, so she's in the bikini and the fur coat. So I suppose we could argue that that's probably reason why. We all know that the production reason why is that she was in a bikini, and I'll leave that there. But you could argue that because it's hot in the cave, therefore you would need to wear fewer clothes. There we go. But we find out from this character that she has been left alone to die. Now, loneliness. There have been a lot of news articles. There have been a lot of programs and documentaries detailing loneliness and the killer that loneliness can be in modern society as we have sort of moved into the modern age and the culture of always instantly connected to people physical contact has gone by the wayside and we're seeing that certainly in older generations loneliness is a huge part of society and it is 
causing a lot of problems. And we have a 1960s TOS episode dealing with the problem of loneliness, how it would make you irrational, how it would make you want to do things that you wouldn't necessarily want to do. Spock starts then talking about her, how she is a beautiful woman and how he has no other option but to eat meat. Now Spock is a vegetarian, stepping out and into the production universe. I know that that was a conscious choice on his part to make him vegetarian because there was a thought that because they are touch telepaths that they would have some psychic connection to the animal that they were eating. So you know, Leonard Nimoy took the decision to make Spock a vegetarian. So going back into the episode, you have Spock eating animal meat just because he has no other choice. But he's already putting together in his mind that he could use the hot spring to make a greenhouse to grow vegetables and eventually get back to his vegetarian lifestyle. He's flirting with her. He's acting very emotionally again. He then leans in and he kisses her. He's also really poetic. He talks about how beautiful she is and how he needs to change his ways and things like this. And it's heavily implied that after this scene, the characters do have sex. We never see it on screen but it is very much implied. Because we end at timestamp 40 minutes, 51 seconds, we then come back at timestamp 42 minutes and one second. Both Spock and Zarabeth are on that fur-covered bed, fully clothed, but we are sort of supposed to read into it that more has happened in this time. McCoy has woken up, he's on his feet, he's walked into the part of the cave where both Spock and Zarabeth are, and he can't believe it. He's starting to call out Zarabeth straight away. Now, it kind of seems like sour grapes at this point. We haven't had much to go on. She did reject him in favour of Spock. You could argue that McCoy is acting a little bit privileged and a little bit offended here, that uh, she batted back his advances, and so he's being a bit aggressive with her. But I think there's been enough subtle hints from the actor. There have been enough sentences uttered that we can kind of think that McCoy needs to break Spock out of it now if they've got any chance of getting back to their times, their 5,000 years in the future. McCoy also seems to have figured something out. In previous scenes, he's worked out that it's 5,000 years ago and what is happening at the time of Vulcan history. The best way to attack Spock is to actually attack Zarabeth. Not physically, but actually go at her with words. He's starting to call out her loneliness. He then says, if you were lonely, if you've been alone for so long, you would cheat, you would lie, you would do all sorts of things to keep the people here so that you would not be that way again. He even goes as far as grabbing Zarabeth. Again, really uncomfortable to watch. But if we are accepting that McCoy is trying to trick Spock back into being himself again, you could write off that grabbing Zarabeth is such a visceral reaction. He's trying to get Spock to, to sort of get back to himself. That even though this is a, a violent act against Zarabeth, it is a needed act to get to where he needs Spock to be. Spock then grabs McCoy, pushes him back. He's holding him, physically restraining him. And McCoy is then saying, think of your ancestors. Right now, 5,000 years ago, what are your ancestors, the barbaric ancestors on Vulcan doing? And that's what breaks Spock. Spock is aware of his ancestry, the violence of the Vulcans, and that has seemed to work. Spock mentions that he's losing himself. McCoy points out that Zarabeth has only said she can't go back. Not necessarily that they can't go back. She was changed by the Atavagron, but they weren't necessarily changed as well. Hmm. So if you're not changed by the Atavagron, it doesn't change your nature. 
So if I am the person I've always been, that means that I may be able to go back to my own time? Hmm, I wonder. Uh, uh, anyway, back, back to the podcast. McCoy says he's going to go out there and try anyway. He's going to try and get back to Kirk. Spock and Zara eventually follow behind him. He's gone out into the wilderness. He's got some furs on him, so he's just trying to find the door again back at that ice cliff when they first arrive. They can hear Captain Kirk again. They start talking out to him. So Kirk, whatever he's gone through, must have been okay by the end of it. There's no final kiss between Spock and Zyra Beth at this point, but Spock shoves McCoy as if he's going to shove him back through the, the doorway. But nothing happens. It doesn't work. It becomes apparent that they have to return back to their time together for it to work. They arrive together, they have to go back together. Spock can't stay with Zara Beth and he has to leave with McCoy. There's no grand goodbye, but there's just the swelling of the music as we stop at timestamp 48 minutes, 20 seconds. Wow, that's a, that's a lot to go through, uh, but that is us, located 5,000 years ago. Continuity. We've had this idea of the Atavacron. Um, locking you into the past. Now, what exactly that does, I don't know, but it means that you can't return to your own future. So if there is an entire race of aliens who've gone back in the past, there's a butterfly effect again of those people going back in time. Now, if the Intavacron can somehow cancel out that move, that means that we haven't got an impact on continuity. Because if you've got aliens who have the future knowledge of time travel going back in time, they could reintroduce it to their society much earlier and perhaps then move out into space or go to other planets to survive. That could change the entire world of that time. However, if the Atavacron links you to that time, perhaps you can't then do anything about it. So it perhaps negates any impact on continuity. Continuity as far as the Federation, Starfleet, our crew, our characters. We've seen Spock lose his temper before. We've seen him get angry before. But overall, we've seen Spock fall in love before and it never seems to work out. The reset button has been hit. So as far as an impact on continuity, given the existence of whatever this Atavacron might be, I think I'm going to have to say there is no impact on the continuity. Alterations. There's a lot here to think about. Um, I would have loved to have seen more delving into... The aspect of loneliness and how it can change you. Perhaps more of a build-up, perhaps a, the revelation of Spock being altered by being in the past, that he's reverting to his barbaric ancestral roots and things like this. You know, make that more of the episode. As it is, there's quite a lot here already devoted to it, and they have to wrap it all up in the 45 minutes to 50 minutes of the episode. So how much more they could pack in, I don't know. There is a natural progression in the story, the acting and choices by both uh, Leonard Nimoy and DeForest Kelly, I think do enough to establish why it's believable that A leads to B leads to C. So as a writer, I don't think there is much I could alter. There's more I'd want to put in, maybe delve into the subject a bit deeper, but realising that there is this aspect of time of the episode, there's not really much more I can alter about it. Recommendations. To a Star Trek fan, this is your classic Spock McCoy episode it's a great interplay between the two it may play out very fast but if you want to know more about spock and mccoy this is something you could easily fit into it you could take this section and use it as a character study for both so to star trek fans i would recommend this scene to non-star trek fans there's a lot of references contextual references to what's happening in the episode there's a tavacron the time travel all this sort of thing but enough is done to establish zara beth that she might be deceptive in some way because she was a political prisoner, that she is lonely, that you would do everything 
you would do anything to not be lonely again. There's some really good character work. As I said, I think it holds its own even to the modern way of doing things in, say, Star Trek Discovery, and as we're seeing in Star Trek Picard. The character work is actually pretty good in this episode, despite it being placed in what is often seen as the worst season of TOS in Season 3, I actually think this one does quite well. Now, to our godlike entities, it's not much for them. It's it's a love story between two corporeal entities. It's not really going to stand out as uh, an integral part of Star Trek. In a grand rewatch, even though you get the characters, I know for a fact there are other episodes coming up. There is parts of history that I learnt when I was at Starfleet Academy as a young cadet, which are better indications of what Spock and who McCoy are. So to the godlike entities... I'm afraid I can't recommend. So all that remains for me now is our final rating category, the setup for next week's episode. Join me next time for Season 1, Episode 5 of this podcast. We're actually going to Season 4 of Enterprise in Awakening. We have another episode dealing with a telepathic look at history, not necessarily time travel. And it will begin at timestamp 11 minutes, 18 seconds. Thank you very much for listening. And I'll see you in the next time stream. If you'd like to contact the show, there's now a Twitter account. Search Temporal Trek Podcast at Rider underscore Coattail. Or contact me directly at Hitch underscore Daniel. I'm also on Instagram, Daniel underscore Hitch underscore Writer. There's also a website with all of the timestamps you need to follow along. Go to Riding Coattails simplesite.com and click the Temporal Trek page link. The show is always going to be free, there's no Patreon at all, but if you wish to financially contribute to the show, feel free to find my books by searching me, Daniel Hitch, on Amazon, and we'll catch you in the next time stream. The music performed for the historical section of this episode was the Epic of Gilgamesh in the original Sumerian performed by Peter Pringle.